0: Five hundred five years ago tomorrow is not the inauguration of Halloween. Uh, five hundred five years ago tomorrow, an obscure, at least at the time, German pastor and theologian named Martin Luther sent a letter to the Archbishop of Brandenburg, uh, detailing 95 propositions for debate that he had with the Catholic Church of their time. After having nailed those same 95 propositions for debate to the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany. Now, that sounds very defiant. It wasn't. The door of the church was uh, a, a bulletin board at the time, so you could do that. Nobody thought you were being an anarchist. We would appreciate you not nailing anything to our doors, by the way. But when he did all of this, he launched what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. Now, what were those 95 propositions for debate he had? Let, let me read all 95. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. But let me kind of summarize the three main issues he had with the Catholic Church at the time. First, he had a problem with the, the Catholic Church selling what are called indulgences to finance the building of St. Peter's in Rome. Now, what's an indulgence? Well, essentially, it's, it's selling forgiveness by the medieval Catholic Church. If you purchased an indulgence you would shorten your stay in purgatory. Now, Luther at the time still believed in purgatory. He'd renounced that teaching 13 years after this. But at the time, it was still a life or death issue for him and also for the majority of the world. Uh, there was a jingle. It went something like this. I won't sing it to you. But the jingle went something like this. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That's how they raised money to build St. Peter's. Selling indulgences was his first problem that he had with the Catholic Church. The second was that the Pope claimed to have the power to shorten purgatory through the selling of indulgences. He had a problem with that. And third, he had a problem with the false sense of security that purchasing an indulgence would give a person who was thinking about their salvation. In other words, they would think, well, I don't know if I'm saved or not, but if I'm not going to go to purgatory, I get an opportunity to work it off and I give this money, I'll get out more quickly. Luther... No longer believed that the church had the ability to dispense that kind of salvation. He had come to believe that salvation came by grace from God through faith in Christ as taught in Scripture alone. That's the foundation of the Protestant Reformation. So, in essence, Luther's problem with the medieval Catholic Church in general and the Pope in particular was that it and he had begun to view themselves and himself in a godlike way, claiming power that God alone has the power to forgive sins. And filled with such pride, the church and the pope had convinced countless others to view them in this exalted, godlike way. And they began to pray financially on that devotion to them. When an institution, church, party, government... Or, person, Pope, King, President, views themselves in godlike ways or calls for godlike devotion to themselves. And when we who look to these institutions or persons devote ourselves to them in ways that usurp our devotion to God, we commit the sin of blasphemy because we have consciously diminished the King of Kings. Think about that as you find Daniel chapter 4 in your copy of God's Word. Now, Daniel chapter 4 is a funky chapter. It really is. It's unusual for reasons that we can see and for reasons that we can't see. For instance, what we can't see, at least in English, is that our passage is a part of three extended passages of the Old Testament, 268 verses uh, to be specific, that are written in Aramaic, not written. In Hebrew, But it's also unusual in a way that we can readily see, in that it's the first-person testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the pagan king who had overrun Jerusalem, plundered the temple of God, taken Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego captive. I can't think of another passage of Scripture, and I've tried. I can't think of another passage of Scripture quite like this that is the written record... And in essence, the author of the passage is a pagan figure. Daniel chapter 4 is very unusual in that regard. But here's how it's not unusual. It portrays Nebuchadnezzar continuing to view himself in ways and to act in ways that are reserved for God alone. And the king, the king of kings, was about to forcefully disabuse Nebuchadnezzar of this notion that he was his equal. That's why Nebuchadnezzar begins chapter 4 with an acknowledgement of God's supremacy. Look at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, he addresses the people, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And then listen to this. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How greater are His signs, how mighty His wonders... His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, those words are very different. They show that something clearly has happened in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. The dude who built a statue and said, Everybody pray to it in chapter three, is now saying that everybody needs to pause and consider the greatness of the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, what had happened? Well, as is pretty typical in the book of Daniel and with Nebuchadnezzar, he had had a dream, a weird dream, a funky dream, a bad dream. This is not the first time we've seen him have a dream and be troubled by it in the book of Daniel, nor is it the first time that we have seen Daniel and Daniel alone be given by God the ability to properly interpret the dream. So what was the dream? Well, if you'll permit me, look at verse 10 and I'll read it to you and Full disclosure, it's crazy. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's And let a beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. In other words, they've said it. It's going to happen. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That is weird. That is one bad pizza that caused that. So what does he see? He sees a small shoot that becomes a gigantic verdant tree. Now, in the pagan culture of the region, that image would have represented the universe, essentially. In fact, what one author calls the divine world order. And it was common enough as an image that Nebuchadnezzar probably would have gotten that the universe is being alluded to in some way. But what troubles him, though, is that after appreciating the beauty of the tree, Nebuchadnezzar hears a heavenly being call for it to be cut down, not killed. Its roots were to remain intact, but cut down, and then that a bronze and iron Band a, a prisoner's fetter be placed around it. So in his mind, he's saying, is the universe about to undergo some kind of cataclysm that I'm being prepared for? And then things get weird. The tree is addressed as if it were a living man, a man who's very clearly in dire straits. He loses his mind and he lives as a beast for seven periods of time. It's weird stuff. So Nebuchadnezzar is troubled, he's puzzled, he's all up in the air about it. What could it possibly mean? Well, Daniel knows immediately because God's given him this insight, but he doesn't want to tell him. I don't want to tell you what it means. Verse 19 tells us Daniel was dismayed and alarmed by what the dream meant, but Nebuchadnezzar insists, insists that Daniel tell him, and so he does. Daniel says, this dream's about you, you, you are the small shoot that grew to be a great tree. But remember, the image that he has been given of this tree at the time would have represented the divine world order, so there's an indictment here. Nebuchadnezzar is being told that he has come to see himself as the personification of all of this, to essentially see himself as if he were something of a god who is completely self-determined and unencumbered by the constraints of mortal life. And it is he who is to be cut down but not killed, cut down. And it is he who is to be imprisoned by his mind and to live as a beast until he understands that there is a God who rules over the affair of common man and kings and Nebuchadnezzar ain't him. And then Daniel says this in verse 27, therefore, O king, Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Essentially, he's saying you've been given an opportunity because you can see the future to turn back, to not have this happen to you. We see this happen a lot in the Old Testament where a prophet is given a decree to a city like Jonah to Nineveh in hopes that the city would turn. So... Uh, Daniel saying, maybe this is your opportunity to turn from your arrogance, to turn from your your, uh, unbelievable pride, to humble yourself, to treat people fairly. Maybe you can change what has been decreed about you. Nope. Nope. Because a year later, after all of the hubbub has died down, we read this. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so a year after the events running through verse 27, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Everything that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in the dream the year before came to pass. That's the bad news. But the good news is that everything that happened in the dream, to King Nebuchadnezzar came to pass. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom and my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. His reason returned to him, and he could see that there is a God who rules over the affairs of common man and kings, and that he was not him. And institutions, church, party, government, or persons, pope, king, president, would do well to remember all of this. You may have heard going out on a limb that there's an election a week from this coming Tuesday. In our politically idolatrous culture, you have institutions and politicians presenting themselves as having an almost God-like power. That should not surprise us. We have just seen in Daniel 4 that that has been going on for millennia. In fact, you put the, the worst modern political figure or institution you can think of up against Nebuchadnezzar, and old Neb's probably going to say, hey, y'all watch this. But what should break our hearts is that God's people, the church, has bequeathed to governmental institutions like the Supreme Court and political figures like, insert name here, take your pick, there's plenty of options, a devotion that should be reserved for only the King of Kings. And and my biggest challenge as a pastor right now is convincing folks that what I've just said is true for almost all of us. Now, I've got no problem convincing you that's true for other people, particularly the people on the other side of whatever it is you're on the other side of, but almost no one believes that it's true about themselves. And I'm telling you, it's true of almost all of us and is the biggest threat to our faithfulness to God that we encounter right now in our universe, and I'm as guilty as anyone. The day before I wrote this message, which is the way God does things to play mean tricks on me, the crisis facing our nation, the division, the vitriol was once again at the forefront of my mind while I was having my morning devotion in my big comfy brown chair in our living room. Turns out that that thing is almost always at the forefront of my mind when I'm having my morning devotions because it so profoundly affects the church. And I was fretting about where this season of American life will end. And I was praying through where I thought the problem might lie. And I was formulating how I will exercise my civic responsibility to try to address these things. And I was fretting about how at Blue Valley there's disagreement about where the problem lies, disagreement about how we should exercise our civic responsibility to address it. And it just got overwhelming to me again. And in the midst of it all again. I was convicted that again I had started pinning my hopes on election outcomes more than God. Now, I would have never said that out loud to you. I'm too theologically sophisticated to say something like that out loud. I've got paper on the wall in of my office that says it, dude. is theologically sophisticated. You, wouldn't say that out loud either for the same reasons. We're all too theologically sophisticated to ever say that our ultimate hope is in election outcomes. But we don't have to say it because our thoughts and actions and conversations and generalized angst rat us out. And and what do those things reveal about us? That we are blasphemers. And pinning my hopes and my country's hopes and my church's hopes on election outcomes, I am consciously diminishing the king of kings. And we have all been given a front row seat in Scripture this morning as to how God teaches kings with God complexes who the real king is. And it serves as God's grace to us in seeing this in the hopes that we might be reminded in this critically difficult time who the real king is, the king of kings. And what does Daniel 4 show us that we need to hear this morning? First, that the king of kings rules the nations. Rules the nations, plural. Nebuchadnezzar had come to believe the press about him. And who could blame him? He had taken what his father had started and had built it into the greatest empire the world had ever known at this point, even including the relatively unknown at the time Chinese and Mongol dynasties. He had started, as a guy I used to work with put it, sniffing his own ether and had become intoxicated by his own sense of self-importance. So what does spending seven years... Howling at the moon like a dog teach him. Well, as we just saw, it teaches him that even the most powerful kings the world has ever known rule only because the King of Kings raises them up. The King of Kings allows it. In this season of American life where it feels like every single election is a battle for the soul of our nation, where even local elections are given the the weight of global import, we would do well to understand that there is no name on the ballot greater than the name of names of the King of Kings, which we say, well, of course, that's true. We know that. There's no new insight there but I'm telling you, I don't think we really know that. That's why we are as hysterical as the rest of culture thinking about our political situation. That's why preachers get wrapped up in in arms in their quiet time. It's because we don't really, really know that. But I want you to think Of the the comfort that the realization that there is no one greater than the king of kings might give us. The time in which we live can cause us to think that the world is spinning out of control. And and each election lost can cause us to feel like God's will has been thwarted in some way. And each election won can somehow make us feel like that God's will has been given a second lease on life. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we need to be reminded that those thoughts are blasphemous. They're blasphemous. The outcome of every election from school board to the President of the United States is an outworking of God's rule over all the earth more than they are a reflection of our will. But that that doesn't mean that every ending is a happily ever after ending. The books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel teach us that God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to be his instrument not of blessing on Israel, but of judgment on Israel. The book of Lamentations details the horror of Nebuchadnezzar's final siege of Jerusalem. There comes a time where God's patience on his people and on nations runs out, but his purposes, please hear me, his purposes are never thwarted and his glory is never diminished. You will wake up the morning after the election and nothing will have fundamentally changed regardless of of who wins, the king of kings rules the nations. And Daniel 4 also teaches us that the king of kings humbles the proud. The king of kings made the mightiest man the world had ever known at that point bark like a dog, literally. The man who marched on God's city And replaced its king with one of his own choosing and then executed that king when that king rebelled against him. The king who destroyed God's city and plundered God's temple. The man who took Jerusalem's best and brightest and made them serve his kingdom. The man who relocated thousands from Jerusalem to Babylon. Whose very name inspired fear and awe over two million square miles of the planet's surface. God made to bark like a dog. Let me encourage you to do this then, the next time you read through the Psalms as a part of your morning devotional habits. Note the number of times that God's people lament their current situation and the seeming omnipotence of those who oppress them, but then confess confidence when it's all said and done that God will have the last word. There are many places you could go. Let me just give you one example. From Psalm 34, the words of David, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous, not might be or should be or hopefully will be condemned, they will be condemned. The king of kings has the final word over all earthly kings. Now we could survey the congregation this morning, and we could find probably we disagree on which modern politician we should be most afraid of. I will select all the above. I think a lot of them, all of them, are dangerous. But what we sh- we should all agree on is that those who oppose God and who hold themselves up as God. All those institutions and personalities that demand a godlike loyalty will be humbled because there is only one King of Kings. And then finally, this the King of Kings restores the repentant. Now, there's some debate as to what Nebuchadnezzar's words at the end of Daniel 4 mean. I mean, people ask, well,. Does all of this mean that Nebuchadnezzar, to use our New Testament language, got saved? I mean, did he did he repent? Did he reject his paganism and embrace the one true God as the only God? I don't know. I mean, frankly, I think we're going to have to wait to heaven and see if he's there and say, hey, that's what that meant. I, I don't know. I don't know. My gut and my reading of all that he says in Daniel chapter 4 leads me to... Pay attention to what he didn't say. I believe he was just adding as a pantheist God to the shelf of his gods and moved him to the front of the line. You don't see a rejection of his gods, but again, we'll never know. I don't know. But it's not important. It doesn't matter. Because the point of Daniel 4 is the extravagant mercy of the king of kings. He warns the world's most powerful man that he's going to be humbled in the hopes, perhaps, as Daniel hoped, that he would repent before it was too late. And when he didn't, this merciful God fulfilled his own prophecy towards Nebuchadnezzar by causing Nebuchadnezzar in beast mode to lift his eyes to see the one true king of heaven and to restore him to power once that lesson was learned. And I think that's how we should pray for the world rulers who... Trouble us today. We should pray that God will humble them, that God will even bring them to a saving knowledge of Himself through Jesus Christ. But I think for ourselves, we also need to pray that the arrogance and Godlike glorification of politicians and institutions in our lives will be broken by the merciful King of Kings, who's causing us to see the blasphemous ways in which we comfortably engage. Let me, in closing, make sure you know what I'm not saying, which I think is very, very important. I'm not saying that we shouldn't show concern and take prayer-driven action in the face of the unraveling of our country. I am not saying that you shouldn't vote. I am not saying that you shouldn't be politically involved. And I am not saying that we don't honor the men and women and institutions that lead us, lest we be in direct violation of Romans 13 and Hebrews 13. But literally for the love of God, I am calling for a reset of our perspective. I'm saying that when we move past godly concerns, and action into a posture that elevates men and institutions to a status and importance that is to be reserved for only the king of kings that we are committing blasphemy. I'm saying that when we talk about the next election as the only hope for our country, that we are committing blasphemy. And how is our world, Supposed to know that the only hope is in Jesus when we are constantly telling the world that the only hope is our dude or our issue winning in November. For the love of God, literally. Let's reset our perspective. So, as hard as this is to hear, I want all of us to consider how easily we have done this. Have you? in this politically idolatrous age, diminished the king of kings? Are you, because of the climate in which we live right now, living in fear and not faith, are you acting in wrath and not wisdom? Are you speaking lament and not love? Are you engaging in foolishness and not practicing discernment? How do we break that cycle based on what we've seen here this morning, let's just leave affirming three truths. Surely we can agree on these things. Surely we can agree. Here's the first truth. Surely we can agree on this. There is no king like the king. Can we agree on that? I mean, we may not be able to agree on who should turn the light switch on, but can we agree that there is no king like the king Second thing, can we agree on this? No election's going to change that. Can we agree with that? No election's going to reduce or elevate his standing as the king of kings. And then can we agree with this? There is no greater hope than our God So let's quit trying to win political arguments on satanic social media. Let's, let's quit trying to say yeah, but in the flesh and blood conversations that we're having with people about the nature of the world in which we live. And let's, those of us who affirm that there is no king like the king and that there is no election outcome that's going to change that, as important as those things are, that there is no hope but Him. Let's pray.